Hi, I'm the resident of Tyr that didn't go to the stone because, I don't know you guys, it just didn't seem like they were being socially distanced and I just didn't want to risk it, you know? Dalen. And you know me, I am your thief taker, I am Eric. And welcome to Loyal's Book Club, a podcast where we navigate our way through the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan. I am your first time reader. And I am attempting to perfect my poker face. And today we'll be covering chapters 51 to 56 of The Dragon Reborn. Now on to the show. So I think we should just dive on in. Chapter 51 is crazy, you know? I do I do know and I don't know. I uh, Truth be told, I read this all in the block last night. And very much like the first three books, each individual chapter feels very smushed up in my mind right now. If this is the chapter I think it is, I believe I texted you last night about it. Yes. So. (laughs) Okay, so it is that chapter. Oh, yeah. Yes. So this is chapter 51, Bait for the Net. So we start instantly with Nynaeve thinking that she sees Rand. Like, it's just out of the corner of her eye, and she sees a tall, redheaded dude with a flute case on his back. And before she can get another glance, he's gone. If it looks like a Rand, if it walks like a Rand, and if it's got a flute case on his back like a Rand, it's probably a Rand. It is. It's mostly likely Rand, but she doesn't think so. She says, I might be dreaming of Rand, but she still thinks he's all the way out to the west. And I'm like, dude, you can chase the Black Aja all the way to Tyr and coincidentally find them, but you can't believe that Rand is here. (laughs) Yeah, you know what? I actually forgot uh, in this chapter that the the girls, our are, are, are wonder trio here, uh, have been a little bit out of the loop for a while because they've been they've been off doing their own thing for for some time now, actually. Yeah, they because they've been in uh, Tarvalon, and then really the only interaction that they've had with the Tavirin is when Matt was getting exercised from the dagger, and then they're just kind of like, "All right, dude, we need you to take a letter for us." Bye, and then. For the past mm, couple months, they've been on their own, really. Right, right. So then we get an interesting moment of Tavirin sort of working. This man with a basket of fish on his back is walking by. He trips in the mud, falls, and all of the fish fall nose first in a perfect circle. And it's a really cool moment, but everyone else in tears just kind of like, eh, okay. And then just keeps going. Right. The people in Tyr are kind of broken down. They, uh, I think they're described as not having any hope or optimism in their face, which is a really depressing thought. But um, yeah, that, that fish basket thing happening was one of the first times I, I saw something in the book and kind of went, oh, I hope they keep that in the show when it comes. I think that'd be such a cool visual to see how, how you kind of do that. In uh, on television, it reminded me of the first Spider-Man movie where he catches MJ's lunch after she slips. Do you remember that? I do remember that. Do, do you know a fun fact about that? They that's a practical that is a practical effect. They did over a hundred takes with glue on the props and the tray, what? and so Kirsten Dunst's like reaction is totally genuine because they've been trying to do that take over and over and over again. Interesting. I. Right? I don't know that. Huh. The wonders you learn of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy. <laughs> but it's interesting that you are talking about the people of Tear are so depressed and so kind of beaten down because 
we got that same impression when Perrin was in Ilian, and so I'm wondering if that's either effect of Taviran or if that's just a general effect of the Forsaken there, or if that's just a result of the political, socioeconomic things that have been happening, you know, there's a civil war in Kyrian that's been affecting trade and tier, and so I just, I don't know if it could be one of those three things, maybe all three at once. Uh, what do you think? Uh, you know, I kind of, I took it a little bit more shallow, I guess. I, I just kind of went, okay, so Rand is here, for sure. Yeah. But that does raise an interesting point that this is either something supernatural or this is just a bit of the human condition that we see in this world because, you know, these people are not like the two river folk where, you know, they have a bad harvest or their sheep get black tongue and, you know, they bounce back. This this group of people, you know, have been traders their whole life and even their market is still going well but i think there's a there's a specific part about the prices of selling and buying being super inflated so i think something supernatural is going on here i do think it's because we got some dark friends in the house oh for sure and Nynaeve even admits that she has to take a step back she has that first instinct to go well, if this was the two rivers, we wouldn't be all depressed like this. And then she kind of goes, okay, it's not the two rivers. This is a completely different culture altogether. So we kind of start seeing her think twice and then kind of go, all right, let's let's be a little nicer here. <laughs> and she turns her thoughts to Egwene, who she's getting more and more frustrated with. And you see that she talks about, oh, whenever I say something or make a plan, Egwene says, we need to... Uh, explain it more we need it to be more concise and you know we are seeing this through Nynaeve's perspective you know and we see that she is seven years older than Egwene and again it's this feeling of I have to protect Egwene but I think Egwene is pulling away from her even more it's this I'm not a child I'm not gonna just nod along because you're the wisdom you know and I think that rift is just forming more and more between them. Well, if I'm recalling correctly, I believe the the setup or the intention was Egwene was supposed to go under under uh, her her wing and kind of learn how the how to be the wisdom in uh, two rivers. And so, so I think there's there's something to be said of you know, kind of that bond being broken a little bit because the world has opened up so much and they're really coming into their own. And you know, she's not a little girl anymore. She's she's coming into her own. She's becoming a woman, and not only that, becoming a real especially in this group of chapters, really becoming a main player for, I think, what's to come. Oh, yeah. And I think Nynaeve just has a hard time accepting that. And so she kind of goes to her usual scapegoat of blaming Moraine. She says that if Moraine had never come, their lives would be a lot easier. You know, Egwene would still be under her tutelage, and then Rand wouldn't be who he was. But then she kind of realizes... No, I don't think that would have changed anything. You know, I think in Nynaeve's eyes, it's easy to blame Moraine for everything that happened. If Moraine hadn't come to the two rivers, then Matt wouldn't have found the dagger. Aaron wouldn't be a wolf brother. Egwene wouldn't be fighting with her at every moment and wouldn't have been captured by the Sean Shannon. Rand wouldn't have been the dragon reborn, so she thinks. But... I think it's this thing of her realizing the wheel sort of takes as it does, you know, there's no way of really stopping it. And, 
you know, it would have happened eventually. Yeah, you know, it's 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 almost like uh, me back in high school hating my math teacher for failing me, when in reality, it wasn't the teacher's fault. It was definitely me being a bad student. <laughs> and then me understanding more and more that I don't hate the teacher. I just hate the educational system. Yeah. But that being said, uh, I do think she has, you know, she's going to hold on to that anger. And I think that's going to be a driving point until we actually have some type of showdown between her and Moraine. Yes. That's one of my predictions. I, I think it's going to come to blows. For sure. Nightingale chooses violence pretty much as a constant. So I think the idea of her and Moraine coming to blows would be really interesting to see. Like a full on fight in the middle of tier, I think. You know, that's what Robert Jordan had fully imagined writing these ser- these books, you know? I don't have anything to respond to or react to that because I finished the book and I know it doesn't happen in tier, but I do know and I do believe it's going to happen down the line. And I do think Lon is going to get involved. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, it's not it's not necessarily a love triangle, but there is a triangle there between his duty to Moraine and th- this obvious affection and attachment we have between between uh, uh, him and, and Nynaeve. So uh, I'm, put, I'm putting it in the predictions. Things are going to blow up at some point in that little triangle. Well, we shall see. But in the meantime, uh, Nynaeve is going back towards Mother Gwena's house and Julian catches up with her and he says, found the Black Aja and that they're guests of the High Lord Saman. But rereading this chapter it's interesting how you suspect something is wrong because when we first met julian he was so like calm and put together and like here's what i need to do here's what i need from you boom 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 he seems so uncharacteristically distracted and so nervous and frantic uh did that tip you off to something was wrong when you read it no no you know what uh jordan got me real good here i I just figured because, you know, he figures out that it's the, you know, the High Lords and, and all of that. And he kind of realizes there's some some bad stuff going around and stuff that he doesn't want to be a part of. So I totally took it as like, oh, no, our professional is freaked out. So I'm freaked out. And it did make the reveal later in this chapter just that much sweeter to me because oh, yeah. I, I really did get got on this one. <laughs> it's It's rough because it's this slow reveal of they get to the house and Nynaeve sees Mother Gwena is bound with air and she can't move and Nynaeve realizes she's been betrayed and the second that she's able to channel Leandrin and Rihanna come into the room and it's one of my favorite Nynaeve moments because she wakes up and chooses violence by immediately decking Leandrin in the mouth and backhanding Rihanna across the face. But it's really of no use because they instantly just get her to her knees and are beating her with the power. And it's a really rough read because Nynaeve thinks, if I die, I'm not going to let these two women know I died crying and cowering. Right, yeah. And I don't know if you you covered it, but uh, they they cut her off from the source. Yeah, they shield her. Uh, And you... Yeah, and you know, it's 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 a great piece of character work, in my opinion, too, because it doesn't matter if she's cut off from the true source. She's still going to lash out and hit, express herself, so to speak, very violently. And 
honestly, the image of Leandrin getting decked was so satisfying to me after, you know, all, all of the, all this stuff that's been happening. I, I did not expect it to happen like this and this fast. I thought we were going to have a little bit more play, but I, I loved it. I absolutely love that, that she just ah, cocks her a good one. Oh yeah, she got what was coming to her, and I bet Nine Ave has a mean punch. Oh, a hundred percent. Yes. Knock a few teeth out, hey. But I think what really got me in this scene is Leandrin's line where she says to Nynaeve, Perhaps you are too stupid to know when you're defeated, Wilder. You fought almost as wildly as that other foolish girl, that Egwene. She almost went mad. You must all learn to submit. You will learn to submit and just the submit part of that and talking about Egwene and what really hammers it in is that Leandrin sold Egwene out to the Sean Chan and is responsible for Egwene's trauma and just knowing that and knowing that Leandrin probably reveled in watching Egwene get beaten and fight just makes this scene even more gut-wrenching to read. Nynaeve is really, really beaten down, and she's taken into the next room, where we also see Elaine is also badly beaten up, and we see is that Egwene is unconscious, and she says that Egwene's face is almost unrecognizable from all the bruises on her face, which just really goes to show how, one, how hard Egwene fought, and two, how much they really just beat her down, you know? But the chapter ends with the girls being taken outside and Julian rushes to the carriage. And I think what Gabriel did to Morgase, Leandrin did to Julian, because you can tell there is this look in his eyes where he's kind of like, I did it, but I, I you know, I don't know why I did it, you know? And you kind of feel bad for the dude because you know the way Leandrin is just gloating over this, that she used whatever compulsion that Gabriel has. Yeah, you know, retroactively, this actually heightens the stakes for me in a bit for the first two books where there really is this, uh, there's this offer, I guess, that if you're in a town and there are dark friends and they are looking for you, they have their ways, they have their means. So in a way, retroactively, I, I think about the first journey that the whole group had together, and it really kind of puts it in a new perspective for me, because as we obviously see, these women, especially the Black Aja, are very arrogant and very powerful, and I probably would not want to cross them. They're, they're, they're in my top three do not want to cross list that of people we've met so they're far. They're very horrifying, and especially because... For the past three books, we've seen the Forsaken, and the Forsaken are intimidating, but I feel like the Black Aja are such an immediate threat, if that makes sense. Because, like, Samael is an alien, but we've never seen him confront Rand. He just sent out the Dark Hounds, you know? Uh, Bilal is in Tyr, but again, we haven't seen him yet. He's just kind of acting through people. You know, he sent out the Black Aja, as we find out, through uh, Leandrin on, as they're getting ready to leave Mother Gwena's house. And we find out that Bilal is also calling for 13 Merdral, 
to come to the Stone of Tear. And so we don't know what 13 Black Aja and 13 Merdral combined can do. All we know is it sends Elaine and Nynaeve into a panic that is drowned out by Leantrin and Rihanna's laughter. It's honestly just such a slap in the face, this chapter. And really, it's one of the threads of the book. It's like plugged in. Now you know where that sort of thing is going. Now we have another stake in the ground for our heroes. We are going to go to chapter 52, In Search of a Remedy. It is your idiot nephew and your very, very sick uncle. I know. Tom Tom gets sick in this chapter, and I'm so sad because immediately I knew that he was going to be out of commission for the rest of this book. I, I love Tom. I love what he can do. I think he's got so many cool tricks up his sleeve, and he's out. <laughs> he's out. One of, one of the adults in the room is out. Uh, and yes, my, yeah, my idiot nephew, I'm, you know, I said last week, he's growing on me. He has grown on me even more in this last little bit. I, he's, he's like just slowly inching his way up to my number two spot. Tom is great. I love the dynamic that he and, uh, Matt have. I especially love that Matt and Nynaeve have the same train of thought in, within their two chapters. Matt goes, man, this old man is sick. He's going to stop me from being able to look for the girls more. And then he instantly goes, you know what? That's not fair. He searched with me. He nearly ran himself sick trying to search for the girls. It's so funny how Matt and Anif, sometimes they're they're on the same wavelength almost in that stubbornness, but also this like, I don't know, this, I don't know what the word is. You know, instinctively, I feel like they have a very sameness of mindset where if the you know if the means justify the end let's do them but i think you know that's kind of their the way that they would naturally kind of attack things but i do think they are so human that they do have that restraint they do have that second thought of that that's not being a good person that's that's not fair to this person or or what have you uh and i i love that bit of humanism it just gives them so much more dimension as characters oh for sure so we do have a correction in the chat. We do find out what 13 Merdral and 13 uh, sisters can do. It's That's what they do to turn someone to serve the Dark One. So essentially, Bala's plan is to get the Wonder Girls to the Stone of Tear and turn them to serve the Dark One. Which, you know, horrifying is not something these girls would want. Is, is that specifically spelled out in this book? I, I did not have that detail and... Okay, I very much could have, you know, breezed past it because there are a ton of details, but... According to the chat, it is mentioned in Egwene's accepted test. So mm. it's it's a little while back, you know? That's right. That's that's before this podcast even existed, technically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that, that sequence, though, it, just because we're on it, I do want to run just a tiny tangent. Yeah. That test was so freaking cool. Yeah. I, I, I love wizards and witches and magic and all of that and i think the test is always like how much magic can you do and it's never about like what are what internally makes you tick and kind of worthy of this power and stuff and i just thought that was brilliant and in case we don't get to cover it for a while i just wanted to put that out there for sure and we could always talk about this next week 
uh, for everyone listening, we'll be doing a postmortem on this book. So we can also talk about Egwene's uh, accepted test and Nynaeve's test in the prior book, I believe. But for the time being, let's get to, uh, let's pick up where we left off with uh, Matt and Tom. Matt goes, all right, I'm going to get Tom help because obviously I'm not going to let this dude die on me. He even says, if he dies, who's going to play stones with me? Which, cool, Matt, you have your priorities set. That's good. That's, I, I love that little bit, though, because I feel like Matt is such a child at heart sometimes. And that just felt like such an innocent, heartbreaking thought that he who's he going to play games with? I I, yeah. I don't know. There was something that, that when I read that, I went, oh, Matt. <laughs> I think because Tom is sort of his buddy with, like, dicing and gambling and all that he's kind of someone who just kind of lets matt do what he wants to do without any judgment you know what i mean you know i think rand is technically the the musician out of the two of them he's kind of got the the talent for that but i could totally see out of you know everyone out of our original five matt most likely would have been a gleeman you know that that traveling gambler the I, I'll, I'll stay at any inn and give you a song for room and board and stuff. Like Matt is a gleeman at heart. I think so. I really do. I think he identifies with that type of lifestyle and that type of freedom, you know? Speaking of gleeman, Matt has to take this gleeman. Uh, he is pointed <laughs> in the direction of Mother Gwena's house by uh, the innkeeper, Lopar. And as they're making their way, Matt realizes that this was the house that he saw on the first night. You know, he's like, oh my god, this looks so familiar. He sees three horses uh, attached to the post near the house, and he's like, huh, why would a wise woman have three very nice-looking horses? Um, and so he's just mulling that over, and he gets to her house, and he realizes, oh, she sounds just like the Amarlin Sea, just like Swan Sanche, because... She's also from Tyr. We see Mother Gwena literally manhandle this medicine down Tom's throat. And it's so great because Tom is this like 50, 60 something year old man, like literally pinned to the chair. And she's just like, you'll take this medicine with her pinching his nose. And just like, it's fantastic. It's great imagery. I identify with Tom in this moment because I too hate medicine. I hate anything that you have to like drink or you know spray up your nose or anything and i i just i identify with tom <laughs> in this moment here so matt to ease the tension a little bit because i think he's still going off that gut instinct of my luck has to have brought me here for a reason and he brings up the fact that mother gwena sounds like swan sanche and she goes interesting because you sound like two of the girls that were staying here recently and matt just goes wait what did they look like did one of them have gold hair and blue eyes and she describes a Gwen, Nynaeve and Elaine and Matt thinks to himself upon hearing that light I walked right past this place the first night right past them I wanted random what could be more random than where a ship docks on a rainy night and where you happen to look in a bloody lightning flash burn me burn me and that sort of thing that I love reading, this sort of missed encounters, sort of like with Nynaeve and Rand, Nynaeve, uh, Elaine and Egwene and Matt, like just those moments of if they had just waited, you know, if Matt had come to Mother Gwena's house three hours earlier, four hours earlier, 
he might have seen them and you know the books would have panned out completely differently right now i love the crumbs that we are getting of how you know his talent works and how he's really starting to understand that that it's random it's chance and i think uh you know we've seen it in the past before but i think we're we're getting set up for some really cool chance encounters down the road for sure but we'll have to leave matt for right now and go to your wolf boy but uh matt gets the information that he needs uh the girls have been taken to the stone of tear and so matt goes all right this is gonna be it's, this is going to be something, man. I'm going to have to walk to the Stone of Tear and come out with three women. And the dice start tumbling in his head, which is a motif that we are going to be seeing a lot. Right. And before we before we leave Matt, I do want to comment on just an opinion I have. Matt? Okay. Matt has some moves. Matt is a damn charmer. I don't know why I loved this so much, but when he kind of steals the kiss on her cheek and, you know, he's grinning and just laying on the charm, there's something that I love so much about that. I love, I, I, I love that Matt, he, he's a tomcat. That's, that's how I see him. He's just, yeah. he's just a cool tomcat. And the more we see that, the more I see him flirting and charming and, you know, just being the ladies' man. I'm I'm over the moon about it. I <laughs> I love it, and I can't wait to see how he employs that, and I can't wait to see how uh, he gets in trouble for that. Yeah, because I think Matt very much has the gambler mindset of, all right, if I'm charming with this woman, then maybe she'll let Tom stay here and give me more information. If I'm unlucky, I'll get a slap in the face, but at least I got the information I needed. Matt very much loves to take chance, you know? And I think being charming with the ladies is one of the things where he's like, I can either fail or I can win. I usually <laughs> win. Matt is who I wish I was between like the ages of 15 and 20. I wish I was a bit more of a chance taker. I wish I was a little bit more of a, nah, you know what? I'm going to get into trouble and just smile my way out of it. Oh, yeah. All Matt needs is just to flash that little grin. He's good. If only Perrin had that sort of charm because... Where we leave him in uh, chapter 53 of Flow of the Spirit, he and Zareen have sort of built this almost married routine of they've been in Tyr for four days and he's been working at the forge and every day Zareen's there just kind of watching him. And um, on their way home this night, uh, he almost slips and calls her Fayil and she just like smiles at him and goes, you'll call me that eventually. We'll, we'll be good you know? And Perrin is just, like, short-circuiting. He even admits that whenever Zareen looks at him, he kind of forgets things. He fumbles with his hammer, and he's normally so good about that. And I think I love just this six-foot-something awkward, muscly dude just kind of being like, pretty girl, say hi, what do now, you know? <laughs> no, Perrin is probably the ultimate himbo. And uh, you know what, this is, at this point, I would like to uh, either soft change or soft erase one of my predictions. I thought we couldn't trust uh, Zareen. You know what, I am, I'm, I'm having a change of heart. I love these two together. I want these two together okay. forever. You know, there, there's a bit that I'm sure we'll cover in a little bit, but there was just something very much in the same way where I had the, the, the heartfelt, oh, Matt, I had the same, 
oh parent <laughs> about the both of them so uh mm-hmm. I'm, I'm changing that up i really hope i really yeah. hope i'm not getting set up to have my own heart broken or worse parents heartbroken because i i dig i dig these two as a couple now i'm a hundred percent on board with uh what 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 would their couple name be dalen Pyles. <laughs> Pareen. Pareen. <laughs> For- Pareen. I love it. Uh, Farine. Wolf Falcon. That sounds like a superhero. Wolf- that sounds Wolfkin. Like <laughs> the Wolfkin. Wolfkin. Oh God. I feel like. I feel like that's something else, Eric. That's something else. Wolfkin is something else. <laughs> Quick and drive away. Oh my- Get go. Go, 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 go. But yes, I, 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 I love these two, though. Nice. And I'm just going to leave that there. So, Zareen and Perrin get to the inn, and they're met by Moraine and Lan. And Moraine confirms that Rand is in tear, and also that everybody has been having dreams of him. And Perrin is initially skeptical, and then Lan says... In the past four days, there's been multiple weddings, multiple murders. And I think my favorite thing is, he says, a child fell off a balcony at 100 paces, which is essentially 300 feet in our measurements, and essentially just got up and was fine. And I'd like to think that that wasn't um, to Viren. That was just that kid. And that kid just has strong bones and a strong sense of adventure. Yeah. And that kid's name, <laughs> Neville Longbottom. For all you Harry Potter <laughs> Brushed up was fine. Meanwhile, the pavement is just cracked underneath him. It's just like toddler just wiping off the dust and then going back to get some milk or whatever. That that toddler, what, what Land so conveniently leaves out, Landed in a superhero pose, like fist to the ground, crater. Oh, yeah. Like, very much, like, the music swelled, and then it just, like, took off again to go save the world somewhere. <laughs> a, ve- a very large horn section accompanying. Dun, dun, dun. I don't know the Avengers theme. I was going to try to hum the Avengers music. That, that sounded like something. Dun, that, that did sound dun, like it. Dun, yeah yeah that's it <laughs> all right guys i think eric and i are gonna form a band now we're gonna, <laughs> we're, gonna we're gonna join forces and make a film score band so if anyone has any any film projects out there just come yeah, to us uh, we'll we'll make it emotional John williams whomst he <laughs> was us i know there are more film composers but off the top of my head i'm just like mm can't think of any you, you know after hans zimmer I, i've gotten none others yeah, you, d- you need none honestly you need none um but so then lorraine and land go so Bilal's in here also and we're gonna go fight him you loyal and serene are gonna go up to tarvalon and we get a passage of parents that i when i read it i was like oh pa- eric's gonna like this when parents says i've been so used to running away from fighting now i want to fight because i like it and i think he's slowly starting to let that wolf side take over a little bit 
you know? Yeah. I'm real curious if uh, we're getting a bit more of a feral parent at this point or on a deeper human level, if he's starting to understand how the world works and how sometimes you have to fight, sometimes you have to run. And I'm wondering if that's, you know, Perrin becoming a little bit more in tune with the world or, or exactly how you said, if he's getting in touch with his wolf side, because either way I'm excited and you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll get there in a second, but uh, the way that he goes about his business in the next couple of pages, I was absolutely floored. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so Zareen goes, you don't essentially Zareen goes, you don't have to tell me twice and goes upstairs to get loyal and Perrin is following close behind when he hears just a thump. And he goes upstairs and he finds Zareen lying in their uh, private dining room. And she's she looks dead. Like she's not moving. Like her chest is barely lifting at all. And before Perrin can even go further, Moraine stops him and says, Zareen has been trapped in a flow of spirit. And goes on to say her body is trapped in Teleranriad. And there was an interesting uh, passage where while this is happening, Perrin is uh, flexing his hand, like kind of like stretching it. And he says it feels almost like someone hit his elbow. Like, you know, when he hit your funny bone and I'm kind of like, Oh, that's from, he probably touched the door and there was just a little bit of the trap that, affected him Mm -hmm. yeah and i'm wondering because you know he's been having these these uh wolf dreams a little bit more frequently with hopper and i know that this trap was set in spirit i'm wondering if this happened to somebody else who wasn't parent who wasn't as in tune with that dream world a little bit i'm wondering if they would have been just sucked into the trap completely if they were just a regular human or something yeah because we find out fail is from what Moraine is able to tell Perrin, because she's just like, I don't have the skill of a dreamer. So either Zareen is fully in Teleranriad, and she's just going to live there, be there for the rest of her life, or her body's going to get wasted away, because she says dreamers don't go fully into the dream. They only put a little bit of themselves. And... Mm-hmm. We see Perrin is really just like a switch flipped and he's suddenly like anguished at the fact that Zareen could be dead. And I'm curious to, what, to know what you think of that. Well, you know, when you like someone and I think this is, you know, no matter which way you swing, I think it's a universal feeling of when you're attracted to a person and you're attracted so much it never starts out as a very rational thought of I'm attracted to this person. It's always some weird, like this person is getting on my nerves more than any other person. Or I, I feel like I can't stop thinking of this person and I don't know why. And, you know, this to me was just such an honest way to really reveal parents, true affections for Zareen, because I've, I've had this situation happen to me. I've had, you know, I think my first crush in the fifth grade was uh, on the tallest girl in the class. And I, you know, for the life of me was just like, I can't stop thinking of this girl. And it wasn't until an intramural uh, soccer match where she kicked a ball and it hit me in the head that I was like, oh, I I like this girl. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like parents got kind of the 
you know, about the same type of situation going on where it really just hits him really hard that, and, and not only that, he, when he realizes that he, he goes all in. Oh, I, I cannot tell you how much I love this about Perrin because he's described as always thinking before his actions and kind of, you know, in patience and people thinking he's a bit slower when he's actually just really thoughtful. And this is the first time we see Perrin in action before thought. Oh, yeah. And the way he's really lashing out at Moraine is very interesting because really he's been the only one of the three boys to kind of not have this almost like fear of Moraine. Like he yeah. at her a couple of times and she's just kind of like, okay, dude, like do you do what you want? You know, in a way it's out of character for Perrin, but at the same time, it's totally in character for what Perrin is probably becoming. Yeah. Yeah. The wolf is coming out, man. Ow. Ow. Indeed. Um, but just a small little thing that it took a little bit of clicking around to do. So uh, Zareen was trapped by a hedgehog, uh, Terangrio, that we later find out when Lan and Moraine interrogate the innkeeper that two members of the Black Aja came to the inn and placed it there because they wanted to trap Moraine. And so when Zareen activated the trap, Moraine just goes, Bilal now knows we're here. We have to do this now. But what I found out through kind of thinking about it and kind of going, oh, um, the hedgehog was one on the list of the stolen Terangrio that had been stolen by the Black Aja from the White Tower. And it had been on the list of things that had been studied by Corianin Nadal, which is also the last dreamer in the White Tower, who coincidentally on her list of study Terangriel, Egwene's dream ring is on that list. So it all kind of pieces together and it's such a, oh, okay, you know? Man, and you know what, when I read that, when I read the little bit of Moraine kind of going through her her memories of why this was familiar, I totally felt like, I was like, oh crap, okay, this is either something that should be familiar to me, uh, which is going to almost yeah. 9 out of 10 be a no-go just because I am for the first time taking in all these details, or I thought it was something to put in my back pocket for later, so I'm actually really happy you brought that up and kind of solved that mystery for me because... I I thought I was out of the know, but you know what? I feel very comfortable that that is such a minute, specific detail that I would not have had a hope in a million years of catching. Oh, no problem. It's a thing. Thank you for your studiousness. I realized listening to the past few episodes that I'm like, oh, I should probably go into just piece together a little bit more because, again, we started this podcast nearly three quarters of the way through, so... It's been a while since you started this book, and it's been a while since I read it, so it's kind of just trying to help both of us be on the same uh, way of thinking. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. But uh, yeah, so so Zareen is, is trapped in Dreamworld, and uh, Perrin, if I may have the honors, jumps in after her. And this is the moment where I kind of fist-pumped and was on the Perrin and Zareen train. I, I kind of went, oh... Zareen's not a bad guy. I'm, I'm I'm wiping out that prediction entirely. This is this is our couple that I want forever now. And Perrin now has 
now has something to fight for that that feels bigger than himself because it feels like up until this point Perrin was just kind of going along because he he kind of understood the stakes he kind of understands that he's got to be there for his friends but he out of everyone kind of felt like he wasn't tapped into to Varen as much you know it felt like he was just kind of along for the ride and this was the first moment I felt personally where he's making a decision to do this for himself and for something that's bigger than himself yeah exactly Perrin is starting to experience his place in the world and what Tavirin holds for him. And I think for so long, he was trying to act like, I am just a blacksmith. This talking to wolves is just a blip on the radar, you know? And I think he's finally starting to accept himself. And we see that when he goes into the wolf dream and He's wearing his blacksmith's hammer. And he's like, this is fine. This suits me. Mm-hmm. And then Hopper comes in and goes, young bull, you're here too strongly. And Perrin goes, we're hunting now. And he transforms into a wolf. And it was like, yeah. <laughs> no, it really was like one of the biggest like triumph moments I've experienced in the series. Just because for so long, I've wanted him to just accept and embrace his wolf side. Yeah. And I actually really like this kind of this real dimensional way of showing parents growth of him accepting that he can still be a blacksmith. That can still be a part of what you do. You know, you don't have to pick one or the other. There are many things that make up your identity and who you are. Exactly. You can be a blacksmith. You can also be a wolf boy. Yeah. So, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you've got big dreams of being a wolf blacksmith, just know someone's done it. They've paved the way for you. Just accept your wolf side and take up that hammer. Awoo. Awoo. That has been uh, your daily inspiration with Eric. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but in, and we also finally see Perrin starting to call Zarine Fail. And he says, I promise if I get you back, I will call you Fail. And he finally says, We have to hunt the falcon. So he's slowly starting to embrace these viewings from men and it's a shame that we have to leave him at this point because we are now going to be getting to chapter 54 into the stone into the stone into the stone and out of the stone to get the wonder girls Um, i'm happy you're marking the chapters because i do believe it was at this point going forward where all of them just start to blend a little bit for me. And I think we have a lot of perspective changing or uh, point of view changing and stuff. Oh yeah. No, definitely the last 54, 55 and 56 all blend together because so much is happening. Mm. And you always know shit's about to go down in a fantasy book when the POV starts shifting rapidly in chapter. Yeah, And you're like, Oh <laughs> no, no. Well, and you know what? I really like this type of style because it just clipped along at a better pace for me, better than the other two books. My biggest gripe with the series so far, which is we kind of have the same formula in these first three books of, you know, they're scattered to the winds, they come together and they fight and defeat the big bad somehow. Yeah. And I thought for a second there that the first three books were one book that got broken up at some point down the line, in which yeah. case it is a it acts as a perfect you know, three act, uh, large story. And that just took away any, any complaint or any critique I had on that. 
But since that's not the case, I still do enjoy how this book in particular is written in these final chapters. Oh, yeah. Um, for me, The Dragon Reborn is I like to break up the Wheel of Time series as a five-act play, almost. For me, book three is the end of act one. I agree with that. I, I totally agree with that. I, I felt a, a more natural, organic ending to a larger first bit. I, I even told you, you know, it feels like I'm still in the setting up phase for the whole series. Yeah. And then act two is books four, five, and six. Act three is uh, seven, eight, nine, ten. And then act four is 11, 12, 13, what act am I on now? Four? Four. Act 13, act four is the first quarter or so of A Memory of Light. And the final act of Wheel of Time is the last battle to the end of the series. But we got a little off topic. Let's get back to it. Matt is standing outside the Stone of Tear. He's been studying it for quite some time. He has his fireworks bundled on his back in his hotel room, which I was like, yes, fireworks. Matt's going to start something. He's going to do something. So I have a proposition. Uh, So for anyone who, you know, likes to read literature and plays, or if you're an actor or director, or if you're in that world of, you know, performance and stuff, there's the uh, concept of Chekhov's gun, which, you know, should be famous enough just for the layman, but just in case you don't know, that that basically meant that whenever Chekhov, a writer, uh, a playwright, brought in a gun, you knew that that gun was going to go off somehow and, you know, be a pretty big inciting event of some kind. My proposition is, for the duration of this podcast, we have Matchroom's Boom, where whenever Matt has something that's going to go boom, you can almost be assured that it's going to go boom. Matrim's boom. I love that. <laughs> that is chef's kiss. I think that is awesome. We need to keep that. We need to keep that. <laughs> but uh, be- before this, actually, uh, I'm sorry, I'm jumping the gun a bit, but we we get some of your favorite people in. We get the Aiel. Yes. Um, yeah, so Matt is studying the Stone of Tear, and as he's kind of trying to figure out what his plan is, he sees someone climbing up the stone of tear because he goes, I'm going to have to climb up here unless I can find like a gate or something to sneak in, but it's all guarded. And he sees someone climbing up the stone of tear and he's like, okay, well that dude's doing it. So he'll probably set off the alarms before I can do it. And he's just about to do it when he feels a blade at his neck and we see him use his quarter staff fight by fight and then he's pinned to the ground and we get another Aiel we have Ruark or according to the pronunciation in the back of the book Rourke but I've heard Ruark so we are going to go Ruark so he's just like oh holy shit they're black veiled Aiel and one of my favorite moments is he's talking with the Aiel and we get our first uh, female Aiel, who she tells him, you dance well. Perhaps another day I will have time to dance with you properly. And Matt starts going, ah, uh, probably another dance that you're thinking of, not the dance that I'm thinking of, you know? And so he sees that he's surrounded by a bunch of Aiel. And it's a thing that I can't wait for you to go back and 
find. Matt has a habit of humming certain songs that unintentionally kind of describe the situation that he's in. In this case, he's humming, I'm down at the bottom of the well. So (laughs) it's just this great, like, wait, what? Okay. (laughs) The Aiel admit to have been watching Matt watch the wall for some time. And then Julian Sandar comes into play and he says, well, I've been watching you watching Matt watch the wall. And it's a great... You know, it's really it's really good on Jordan to really set up the the patterns in the weave that kind of, you know, coincidences will happen because if this were any other fantasy and that wasn't set up, I'd be calling bullshit on so much of like, oh, yeah. yeah, of course that person's there when that person's there. But in this series, it just makes sense. And I'm actually, I'm kind of digging that more and more as we get along. Oh yeah, because there's so many times where it's like any other author, well, the Weaves of the Wheel and Tavirin are something where it makes sense in the universe. It's like, oh, of course they're all being pulled to the same place. Yeah, it's like you said, any other author, I'd be like, no, bullshit. That's so, you know? It's a little too coincidental. But the fact that this, the whole series, like the theme is like coincidences are going to happen and that they are bigger than coincidences. And sometimes they are just coincidences because that's kind of how the world works uh i i love it but yeah julian's here too and i'm i'm happy because i was actually really afraid that we would never see julian again yeah uh i'm hoping he's a player that that sticks around for a little bit longer uh his character has some loose ends to tie up and he gotcha admits that to matt where he says he did something today that really kind of messed with me and he goes on he's like part of me feels like I did the right thing, but then part of me is conflicted. So whatever Leandrin did to him is still probably, I don't think the magic has fully worn off or if it has, there's some remnants of it in the back of his head. And so we get a little bit of Aiel lore. Uh, Ruark introduces himself as Ruark of the Nine Valley Sept of the Teradad Aiel. And he was once in Athendor, a red shield, so something along the lines of what thief catchers do. So all of them are just chilling and kind of like, what are you doing here? Well, I'm here to go into the Stone of Tear. What are you doing here, Aiel? And they said, we're not here to harm the city. We're not here to start anything. We have been called to go to, go to the Stone of Tear. And then they go to Matt. What are you doing here? <laughs> and Matt's like, I'm here to rescue some of my friends. They are prisoners in the Stone of Tear. And I like that Matt has just met a legendary race of warriors that have been sort of feared in the Westlands. And instead of being scared, he just goes, so do you guys want to help me out here? And they just go, no. <laughs> and they just vanish <laughs> into the night. And it's like, great, cool, by myself at this. It's such a great little, like, Matt tries to make friends with everyone. <laughs> and I believe, is this the spot, too, where we find out that Gaul is among them? Yes. Or is that... Yeah, I, I caught that because I don't I don't know this Gaul, but I know you're very excited. So yeah, he's the, I've been trying to keep my eyes out. Gaul is the Aiel Perrin rescued from the cage. So, like, he's already been in there. And so, yeah, Gaul is a huge fan favorite. So the Aiel bounce. They're like, we're going to do our own thing. You guys have fun. 
and Julian and Matt start talking and Julian goes, so, um, the people you're trying to rescue, the three women, right? And Matt goes, yes. And so Julian says, okay, I can get you to them. You just kind of have to trust me on this, you know? So Matt says, fine, let's do this. I got a plan first. So he goes to the wall of the Stone of Tear and he sticks his fireworks, like the bag of fireworks, into one of the arrow slits and he lights it on fire. And it's one of those things where I'm like, I'm really glad that Tom was there to talk some sense into Matt, into not start opening the fireworks because he blows up a portion of the wall of the impenetrable power created stone of tear like it is just this like of course matt does that of course it's matt who does that you know i mean who who else could it be really that's true ancient sacred space not on my watch <laughs> so yeah he blows a hole in the wall and you know he gets he gets a pretty big head ringing and i think julian is uh pretty pretty dazed too for a second and pretty like what just happened yeah. <laughs> which is you know when i because fireworks are a little commonplace in our world but putting myself in julian's shoes i probably would have flipped my shit a little bit oh, i would have had to be like so i'm gonna run home and change my pants <laughs> well he thinks that matt can channel for a second i think right i would too yeah he says uh i thought you called down lightning are you one of those <laughs> men who could channel like at this point if i were julian i would have just been like you know what <laughs> offer rescinded yeah offer rescinded i'm gonna go home bye because it's like i've already dealt with people who can channel today i'm not dealing with a man who can channel especially you're gonna go crazy if you're not already crazy uh so they get into the stone of tear both of them uh start fighting off defenders of the stone and julian is just like i just attacked defenders of the stone i'm gonna get killed but you know what let's keep going you know so we get, I found this interesting as we begin to switch POVs, we get, Matt says in his head, I'm coming, I'll get you out or die, I promise it. And so it's this interesting little somewhat prophecy fulfilled with Egwene dreaming that Matt says, I'm coming. Though it's mm -hmm. not directly to Egwene in his, in the chapter, it's still this interesting like, oh, okay, so we kind of get that, you know, like that little... Uh, fulfillment of that, a little end to that, which I thought was really cool. And we now also, for the first time on the podcast, get a Rand perspective. So his perspective takes place a little bit after Matt's blown up the Stone of Tear and the alarms have gone off. And this small paragraph, this boy needs a drink or <laughs> two or... I don't know, man, like a couple of barrels of brandy or something, man. He's going through it, you know? It, it, even the way it's written, it's it's so discordant and it's so chaotic. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think earlier when, uh, before this podcast was even an idea and we were just chatting about the book in general, I remember bringing up like, well, Matt and Perrin are his, are his friends. They, they should be his friends. And I think you brought up, well, he's like a walking atomic bomb. And yeah. this is one of those first times where like you can kind of peer in a little bit as a first time reader and understand the uh, the chaos, the power and the absolute unhinged kind of aspect it has. Oh, yeah. You know, 
this isn't a wizard that knows their power and can kind of control it at will and stuff. This was the first time I, I kind of thought, oh, this whole thing could blow up right now and I wouldn't be too surprised. Yeah, like you really start to see how much Rand sort of not gives up, but he's sort of starting to go, I'm going to finish this, you know, let's just do it. Like he's kind of like, there's no, I have to do this for the world. I have to do this. He's just like, I want to get Kalendor. I want to end it. Let's go, you know? Right. So then he starts laughing to himself, which is always a good sign, you know? That's always a good sign. Totally normal. As he starts making his way down to the corridors of the Stone of Tear, and we switch to the Wonder Girls in the dungeons where we have Egwene waking up, and again, I mentioned this a little bit earlier in the episode, but her first thing that she says is, no, I will not be chained again. I will not be collared. No. So you can just see how much trauma is like still with her, you know? Yeah. She still, she still carries that. And that's why, you know, I think last episode or earlier this episode, I made the prediction that she's going to have a bit of a showdown and and she's going to have some righteous revenge. Oh yeah. The Sean Chan have coming and so do Leandrin and the black Aja, honestly. Yeah. You know what? Here's a here's a bit of a uh, a wild prediction I'm going to make. All right. Because Egwene, you know, f- kind of fishes around in her pouch and she realizes that they didn't take uh, take the ring, the, yeah. the dream ring. Oh, yeah. Now, I'm wondering, because I could totally see this as the Black Aja just being arrogant and, you know, not giving the once over to these accepted because they're not even proper Aes Sedai. Yeah. However, my wild prediction is someone in the Black Aja is a double agent and is actually on the light side. Interesting. Yep. So we've so far only met uh, Leandrin, uh, Joya, Rihanna, and then in this chapter later we meet Amiko. So we still have nine to go. So we're going to put that in Eric's back pocket and... We'll see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she's, Egwene is talking to all the girls and she finds out they're all shielded and they come to the realization that they are probably bait for Rand. That the Black Aja have, has gotten them trapped so they can get Rand and they could probably steal him or kill him. And she also says that she dreamed of Rand and Kalendor. And she says she dreamed of Matt and she dreamed of Perrin, but she says it was a wolf, but I know it was Perrin, which is so like, ooh. <laughs> we're, we're, we're like just stepping side by side, like with our initial group and what they can do, but we're not quite there yet. Like I'm waiting for the scene where they're, you know, our, our field five are around a campfire and just kind of shooting the breeze of like, so uh, what magic can you do? Yeah. <laughs> I have uh, luck. I can walk in the wolf dream. I can walk in the dream too. Uh, Ran. The voices in my head won't stop. Okay, Danny, what can you do? So I do have a I do have a story question or a plot question at this yeah. point. Because Rand was already on his way to the Stone of Tear. Like it was pretty obvious from the get-go that he's on like a direct beeline there. Right. Is it is it just that the Black Aja don't know that and they took the girls or they took them anyway? Or 
Um, I'm wondering why we needed the girls as bait from their perspective if Rand was pretty much on his way already. I believe it was a the Black Aja. Well, they brought the girls there because they were going to turn them to the Dark One. But I think right. it was a thing of the Forsaken plotted to get Rand to get Kalimdor. So okay. I think the reason the girls are captured was if he doesn't go straight for Kalimdor, he'll go for the girls, you know? Gotcha. Cool. Okay. Cool. So um, this is such a small little moment, but I can't help but thinking of Rand and his almost uh, thoughts about just letting it die and just letting it all end. Um, Egwene sees a piece of graffiti on the wall that says, the light have mercy and let me die. And there's a couple of times in this uh, section where she thinks that, and she even says, uh, the light have mercy and let me die. Her hands clenched into fists, her jaws cramped with the effort of not screaming those words. Better to die, better death than being turned to the shadow, made to serve the dark one. And this is before, like you said, she finds the dream Terangrio. But it's such a dark moment for Egwene because it's just this like, shit, you know? And I don't know, it made me think of Rand, too. You know, I think just that moment, they both kind of have that same, I think they're both in that same sort of bad mental state right now. And so she decides to go into the world of dreams. And she handles Sidar and finds herself in to the Stone of Tear, where she sees Joya Bayar standing with Kalimdor. And... We this is a really great section for Egwene because we start to see a more ruthless side of her come out. And we see a lot of that anger. And we start to see her really getting more confident in the power. And so she shields Joya, and Joya is just like, oh shit, you have a Terangriel. And Egwene is just like, you can't stop me here. You won't wake up in the real world. Like I shielded you here, and whatever happens in the dream world happens in real life. And she says to Joya, A woman who can give such beatings, she said, should have no objections to a milder one. She wove another flow of air quickly. Joya Bayar's dark eyes bulged in disbelief as the first blow landed across her hips. Egwene saw how to adjust the weaving so she did not have to maintain it. You will remember this and feel it when you waken, when I allow you to waken. Remember this, too. If you ever try to beat me again, I will return you here and leave you for the rest of your life. She is on the warpath. Right. Yeah, she's she's more confident in her power. She's coming into her own. And I don't know if it's this part specifically or if it's just in a little bit, but she... We get a little bit of glimpse of her making her own code because I think she makes the statement that she's not going to, you know, be as evil or, you know, do do the things that was done right. to her. Uh, I believe, like, as, as far as that goes, but there's still there's still a ton of, you know, ruthlessness behind that oh, promise yeah. of she has this power now and she's kind of able to really mess up some people's lives at this. Yeah, point. Yeah, and I know what you're talking about, because right before we switch POVs, she releases one of the weaves she has on Joya and says, I don't like doing this. I don't like showing you this mercy. I should probably learn to start cutting throats instead. And it's just this, oof, girl. But 
we get to switch to Young Bull as they are continuing their search for Zareen. He finds Zareen. She's lying in on this stone. She's wrapped in all these chains. And she wakes up and has a very fairy tale moment and goes, I kept dreaming you would come, Blacksmith. And he calls her Fael. He calls her Fael. And then, unfortunately, when she says his name, she fades. And Opper tells Parent, the dream is not like the world of flesh, young bull. Here, the same hunt can have many endings. And so Parent breaks the stone out of pure anger, and he goes, then I will hunt again. And they continue on. They air butt it through the rest of the Stone of Tear. So we catch up with Matt at the end of this chapter, and he is fighting one of the High Lords. As he's fighting the High Lord, the High Lord Darlin has this, like, speech of, Haha, you cannot best me. I am High Lord Darlin. And then he gets his ass handed to him. It's great. It's so just this, like, moment of physical comedy where I just need Matt to whack him across the head and he just faints. Well, the fact that Matt, like, interrupts him to piss him off is such a such a moment that I relate to whenever the villain is giving their monologue and how much I've I've always just felt like why don't why don't the good guys just like interrupt him and be like a jackass and and Matt exactly does that and I I felt so seen in that moment. There's a moment I love is they're getting ready to leave and Matt thinks burn me if I have to fight one or two more like this I'll bloody well fall over from exhaustion. The stories do not tell you that being a hero is such hard work. Nynaeve always did find a way to make me work. It's so good. And it's a thing of, if you told Matt, so you admit, you're a hero. No, I'm no bloody hero. But you just said that. I'm not a hero. It's, Nynaeve is always, it's like, you're rescuing her, my dude. You did this. It's not Nynaeve. It's not Egwene. It's not Elaine. It's all you. Chapter ends with him and Julian continuing on down to the cells. So then we are now going to go into chapter 55, what is written in prophecy. And we get to Rand and he is entering the heart of the stone and he sees Kalendor. And in a line of dialogue that cannot be misconstrued as anything else, Bilal steps from the shadows and says, take it, Luz Theron. Take it, Kinslayer. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, I was so, I was so, I was reading so ferociously through this bit. I didn't even think about it contextually. It is just one of those things where I imagine Bilal's just been going, all right, all right, I'm going to hide in the shadows, right? All right, all right, can't, can't, can't mess this up. I'm a big bad guy. I gotta, gotta make sure. Come on. Have you seen American Beauty? No, I have not. Is that a, a movie. is that on the watch list now? Yes. Uh, there's a part where Annette Benning is a real estate agent, and she's literally hyping herself, going, "You will sell this house. You will sell this house." And I imagine that's what <laughs> Bilal is doing right now. He's like, "All right, all right, Luce Theron's coming. All right, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? You know, like you get to see him again. All right, I'm gonna step out of the shadows and I'll push him." No, 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 no. <laughs> no, first I'm gonna... Oh my god, I hate you so much. <laughs> and then I'm gonna, and then I'm gonna say, mm, that's Kalendor. And then I'm gonna push him. <laughs> and I'm gonna say, I'm new to Tear. I'm new in Tear. No, 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 no. Leave some mystery. All right. There, I need to find a way to progress. 
fact that I am not actually crushing on Luce there, Talamon, and the fact that they rejected me. All right, all right, all right. Take it, Luce. <laughs> For while we're, while we're on this subject, before we get into the actual story matter, I will say Bilal seems like the most easily disregarded forsaken out of all the ones we've oh. met. And as far as patterns go, Dalen, I've got to say, I'm not concerned with the Forsaken at all anymore. I really don't believe that they are as powerful as they ever made out to be or anything because one after another, right after we meet them, they're done with. They're they're done with forever. And it it seems like the easiest thing in the world. I'm just, I'm going to put it out there. The Forsaken are not as scary or bad as they seem. Well, you're in for a treat then. (laughs) Read and find out. But no, the law of all the Forsaken, he just takes the most L's in this entire, in just the one chapter he's introduced. I've never seen someone get dragged as much as him. Like Rand comes in and he's just like, I'm like, uh, he like goes like, you, like, I'm confronting you, dude. Like you, I'm going to stop you. And Bilal's like, no, loose there and take Kalendor take Kalendor, do it. And like, he's like, I'm going to use the Wonder Girls for my own uh, need as I want. And Rand goes, who are you? And um, (laughs) Bilal goes, you do not remember me, do do you? The white-haired man laughs suddenly. I do not remember you either, looking this way. A country lad with a flute case on his back. Did a Shamael speak the truth? He was ever one to lie when it gained him an inch or a second. Do you remember nothing, Luce Theron? Um, that line is interesting. Uh, the, did a Shamael speak the truth? Um, because we've only heard about a Shamael kind of offhandedly. Kind of in passing and when we're leaving the city. And from what I'm getting, each Forsaken kind of has their calling card. Yeah. Kind of their deal of what they do. I think, uh, you know, Bilal is known as the net weaver and he's a bit of a i mean the baiting in this chapter is so obvious that i'm i'm surprised rand didn't just call him out on the spot oh, yeah. about it because it's like dude this is so it's awkward just so pathetic. like <laughs> i feel like i feel like since we're just dunking on him a little yeah. bit it's like a high school production of him like oh no is that calendar it'd be a shame if you took it yeah look loose there and take calendar i mean the the best moment is a name Rand demanded. What is your name? Call me Bilal, the Forsaken Scout. When Rand did not react to his name, I'm like, <laughs> can you imagine? You are one of the 13 Forsaken who gave their soul to the Dark One. They are uh, the most feared names in all of history. And you confront the Dragon Reborn and go, I am Bilal. And he just is like, eh. it is the most like. <laughs> damn like i would just if, you know what it reminded me of what it reminded me of that moment in guardians of the galaxy where chris pat goes i'm star lord and the other guy goes who and he's just beaten down like i'm star lord man <laughs> i have never seen guardians of the galaxy <laughs> oh well after this podcast we'll be making loyal's watch list and we will do the entire cinematic universe all right all right all right <laughs> Um, so, uh, the calendar baiting continues, Bilal just keeps trying, man, and eventually he and Rand start fighting, uh, using a sword. Bilal just keeps trying to bait Rand into taking Kalimdor, 
it's this thing if he keeps going, Oh ho ho, you're not that great of a swordsman, Luz Theron. Not as great as I once was or once we were. Take Kalindor and let's truly fight. Like, it is getting so almost pathetic. And so I do like how the both of us have landed on turning Bilal into a very foppish character on this podcast. That's what he deserves, honestly. <laughs> and so as they're fighting, the Aiel and the defenders burst into the room and that fight continues. And it's now we have one of the funniest unintentional moments of the entire series. So Rand falls back. He's on his back. Bilal could instantly in that moment just go... <clears throat> dead he doesn't because moraine comes into the room and (laughs) the law's like oh it's you see i thought i got you you're (laughs) nothing you're nothing to me and moraine without breaking a sweat breaking her strike bail fires him and kills him it is one of the most like embarrassing things that i have ever seen like the fact that if Bilal had not been like so monologue and trying to prove to Rand that we're one in together, we can fight together, and he just could have just stabbed Rand, he could have had the Black Aja waiting and they stilled him, and then he killed Rand and said, I killed Lucerne, takes Calder. No, he was so caught up in the fact that Lucerne and Ashamel did not let Bilal sit at their table that one time thousands upon thousands of years ago that he is like he let it lead to his own demise it is so sad yeah what i'm kind of seeing is this running theme with anyone that you know works for the shadow that your own arrogance will undo you very much in the same way where the black ajah didn't catch the uh tearing that Egwene had it's it's it exactly it'd be so easy just to do it and have it done and i will say while unintentionally funny uh, if anybody is an aspiring writer, this is such a good little bit to read of why we know on a logical level that villains monologuing, it doesn't make sense. Like, why wouldn't the good guy just take like a cheap shot and kill yeah. him? But there is a reason why those tropes work. And it's just because the how off center I felt taken off of when Moraine just walks in and vaporizes oh him again, you know, I. I really stand by what I say of like these forsaken are just dropping like flies. I'm, I'm sorry, but at this point in the series, I'm not worried about them nearly as much as the black as yeah. just period. End of sentence. These forsaken, as long as we've got our vaporizing cannon on our side, we will be fine. Yeah. <laughs> and so Moraine comes in and goes, you have to take Kalimdor Rand. Like, I wish I could have told you more about it before you did it, but, we're, we're past that point now. But before Rand can take the uh, sword, Balsamon appears. And he incapacitates right. Moraine. And he's like, all right, third time's the charm, Kinslayer. Rand Althor, your soul is mine. And he attacks Rand, and Rand feels like something is like ripping inside of him. And in that pain, he grabs Kalendor. And... The second he grabs Kalendor, Balsamon bends reality and, like, escapes. But I also imagine, like, in the cartoons when someone runs away and they leave the little cartoon dust. Like, I imagine Balsamon just doing that and there's, like, a puff of black smoke and he vanishes. <laughs> and So here's, here's a story question I have. Yeah. Uh, 
because I do need some clarity. Now, is because we we talk about the the dark one, the capital D, capital O, the dark one. Right. That is like our our biggest bad, our our big antagonist. That is our that is our guy. Yes. Is you know, and, and if I'm just up to a point where we're still getting layers of it, that that's fine. Is Balesmon supposed to be the dark one or is he a forsaken? That is very interesting that you ask that. You get the answer to that in the next chapter. Okay, because there is some stuff that happens that made me kind of go, oh, maybe it wasn't exactly what we were thinking or seeing. Okay, yeah. cool. So, we'll, yeah. we'll cover that in a second then. So Balesmon flees and Rand goes, okay, I am the hunter now. And he bends reality in the same way that Balsamon did. And at that, we switch to an Egwene POV. So Egwene is still in the dream, and she makes her way down to the cells where they're all hidden. And she shields Amiko Nagoyan, who is another member of the Black Aja. And she wakes up in her cell, and they find out that they're still shielded from the power. And Egwene goes, I have to go back into the dream. And in this kind of sweet moment, uh, Nynaeve sings a going to sleep. Yeah, I I love when we kind of get the, we still get threaded through a bit of their their life before this big adventure and yeah. how these characters really are connected and had a life before all this. And a lot of that foundation remains. And it's also a little sad, you know, because you see like who these people once were and knowing who they were in the eye of the world and seeing who they are now. And it's only been six seven months since then and how they've changed so much so matt and julian make their way down to the uh cells where the wonder girls are and matt sees amiko nagoyan and uh he almost goes to help her but julian says no no no, no. that's one of the uh i Sedai who took the girls so matt opens the cell and sees Egwene, Nynaeve, and elaine and their first thing that they say to him is, uh, says, Matrim Cotham, what under, under the light are you doing here? And Matt says, I came to bloody rescue you. Burn me if I expect to be greeted as if I had come to steal a pie. You can tell me why you looked as if you'd been fighting bears later if you want. So Nynaeve chastises him for his language. And then Egwene wakes up and also has the same, what are you doing here? And they leave the cell and... Nynaeve knocks out uh, Amiko, and Matt's like, dude, what the hell are you doing? You can't just do that. And so they all use the power on Matt to lift him up, and Egwene says, you do not understand anything, Matrim Cotham. And Nynaeve goes, until you understand, I suggest you keep your opinions to yourself. I think this is a thematic application of these series, because I know they get compared to Lord of the Rings a lot. And while Lord of the Rings is centered around, you know, what it is to be human and fight corruption and, you know, that, that ring of power, it's not, it's not to be utilized in that book series. And I think this book series, Wheel of Time actually dives into that a bit more of like, if you have this type of power, how would you utilize it if it was available to you? And kind of what I see in this are, you know, three women who are coming into that power and using it very freely and understanding that they are bigger than the uh, 
nuisances of their old world, you know, where they would have to put up with Matt and kind of coddle him and teach him and, you know, reprimand him. They can do it in a snap now. Yeah. And I would challenge anybody to do any differently if you were in that type of state. (laughs) I think it is a little unfair on their end to not really like thank Matt. I mean, Matt goes, I rescued you guys and this is how you guys were paying me. And Nynaeve goes, though she doesn't sound sorry for it, she goes, you're right. You are completely right. They're still connected to each other because they all come from the same farmer's field. But I do see them, I see this as them coming more into their Aes Sedai position where they just use people. And it is a moment of, I think, because we know why Nynaeve would punch the Black Aja unconscious. Matt doesn't know. Like, Matt doesn't know the extent of which they have been beaten. They don't know. He doesn't know why they're here. He doesn't know what happened to Egwene and Sean Chan, I don't believe. So he's just coming at this like, what? They still see Matt as the prankster sort of scamp from the two rivers. And so it is this kind of like, they expected it to be Rand. And then it's Matt. And you're like, wait, you? you know? Yeah. So I saw that whole situation as totally organic, uh, totally made sense to me as far as characters and stuff goes. I I would love to dive into a bit of, you know, anybody with a, with a different opinion and why, because I'm sure there's a bit of discussion there, but I kind of expect them to go that way a bit more as the books progress. Yeah. Like be more Ice Dime, more. Yeah. No, I totally get that. And I figured he wouldn't be like furious and like, this is why I don't like Nynaeve and Egwene and all of that. But it's a thing where I've seen it on a couple of like Reddit posts where they go, I will not, that that was so horrible. They're so ungrateful. They're so awful. And I had that same sort of reaction when I first read the series. And then as it's gone on, I've been like, no, (laughs) I, my anger in this whole thing lies with Swan Sanche. I'm like, you sent three untrained uh women to hunt 13 dangerous women who are strong in the power like that's where it's like dude that's your fault and and that's that's where i'm gonna say my last little bit on this is that between the three girls and matt their paths are so different and the stakes of their world are so different matt kind of gets to have a bit more of a fun adventure yeah And these women are charged with so much more. So I think it's a high stress situation. I think their stakes are so high. If I was in that situation, I would probably do the exact same thing. Yeah. And because I think they have more to lose than Matt has to gain. Yes. Um, But it is like a very funny moment of like the Wonder Girls are like, I'm going to get the Leandra. I'm going to beat her ass. I'm going to do this. And Matt's like, dude, there's a fight going on out here what are you all doing and it literally says Egwene patted his cheek as she walked by him and so did Elaine Nynaeve merely sniffed it is just this great like okay hi Matt it's so and then he turns to Julian and goes why didn't you say something and Julian's just like I I saw what talking got you so we're gonna keep my mouth shut smart man oh yeah and despite all of that Matt goes well I'm not gonna let them get I have not come this far to let them get killed now and follows them out. And so we get uh, Perrin again 
and he's still searching for Falcon. Um, he's rescued her twice before. And as they're going for the third time, uh, he gets a glimpse of a man running as if chasing someone. And Perrin just goes, is that Rand? Um, and so we start to see the effects of what happens of if Perrin is in the wolf train for too long. He momentarily like collapses and Hopper's like, dude, you need to go or you are here too strongly. But they've come upon a pair of doors that have thousands of falcons embroidered on them. And um, he shatters the lock in three really heavy hits that seem to echo throughout the stone. And he finds a falcon chained to its perch by a hedgehog lock. And he goes further into the room and he's attacked by all these falcons that start clawing at him and all that. And then like, like using his big blacksmith muscles, he breaks the chain and he wakes up in the uh, inn with Zerfail next to him. And she's tending to his wounds and she calls him Perrin and she says, my poor blacksmith. And he calls her Fael, my falcon. And it's such a like, <laughs> sigh of relief and this also just kind of sweet moment of closure almost. And that's where I set the book down and took a big breath. Yeah, really? A little bit, yeah. No, again, just the, the acknowledgement and the the truth of the prophecies that yes. have been laid out and kind of how we've laid a lot of track in a couple of books back on what we're going to run into. Yeah. It was a very satisfying moment for me. It is a very, it is a great moment. It is a great, uh, it, like you said, it is a sigh of relief because I remember reading this and I'm like, is she going to die? Is she not going to make it? Because you know, no one's safe. And I thought this could be a trigger for Perrin to just go full Wolf Brother and slowly start to lose himself. But I think Fael is that nice grip to humanity that he's got, you know, more than... Oh, yeah, I like that. Brand. That's what I've been kind of thinking about more is I feel like she always tends to bring him back, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, I, I talked about tropes earlier and and I will say a trope, that I love to see through anything is, you know, humans are animals, but are we more human or more animal? Yeah. And, you know, kind of the, the beast within or the monster within, I love that internal struggle. And if we do get a bit more of, you know, pairing back and forth on it and we've got this anchor now, I think that's just going to be such a richer telling of that trope. Oh yeah. I think so too. But I think one of my favorite questions uh, about, the nature of humanity was posed in uh, the Muppets movie where he asked, am I a man or am I a Muppet? My Muppet of a man. Yeah. Didn't that song win an award of some kind? And so it deserved, honestly. I, I think it did. Yeah. I think it won like an Oscar or something. <laughs> that whole movie deserved to win every award. But... Oh, it's great. You know, it, it was great to see this is all tangent. So feel free to cut from, from now to whatever. Yeah. Uh, seeing Jason Siegel actually act with a bit of passion and fun yeah after he totally like felt like it blanked he blanked out on how i met your mother that was a joy to watch for sure for sure um so we're catching up uh we are finished with parents arc in this book and we're catching up with rand 
who is still chasing after Balsamon, he finds himself back in the heart of stone, but he notices that there's no one there. Like, it's empty. And so Perrin and Egwene have both been in this sort of dream world. But it's interesting to see that there's different types of dream worlds and how they sort of, like, interact. Like, you have Egwene in Teleran Riyadh, and she's able to see Perrin in the wolf dream. And I don't know if Perrin... I believe Perrin has seen Egwene. But he's able to also see Rand, but we also don't know if Rand saw Perrin in his dream. So it's just this really interesting building upon the world. And like you've been saying, we have this untouched well of rules of magic that we're just starting to explore. So he's continuing to chase after Balsamon, and a bit of bale fire is shot at him, but he manages to deflect it with Kalimdor. And as he's running, we see all of these traps being set out for Rand that He's channeling so much of the power of Sayadin. He's starting to acknowledge that if I keep going like this, I'm walking on a razor's edge. This is very, very dangerous, you know, because he's really making his way through all these traps and um, kind of doing it with this sort of ease. And finally, Balsamon, they stop and he, Balsamon goes, I will not be undone. I cannot be defeated. Aid me. And so he gets more help from the Dark One. And um, all of these like little wires start running off of Balsamon. And Rand just goes, you are destroyed. You are undone. And he cuts the ties, the wires. And then he stabs Balsamon's chest. And as Balsamon is dying, he says, fool, the great Lord of the Dark can never be defeated. And then Balsamon dies. But this is where the interesting thing is. Rand is taken out of Balsamon's dream world, in a sense. And he says, And at Rand's feet lay the body of a man, sprawled on its back, with a hole burned through his chest. He might have been a handsome man in his middle years, except that where his eyes and mouth should have been were only pits from which rose tendrils of black smoke. And we get one of the saddest bits of dramatic irony. Rand thinks, I have done it. I have killed Balsamon. Killed Shaitan. I have won the last battle. Light, I am the dragon reborn, the breaker of nations, the breaker of the world. No, I will end the breaking and the killing. I will make it end. And he announces himself to the chamber as Randall Thor, the dragon reborn. But that whole thought paragraph is so funny because you read it and you're like, huh. And then you look over and you see you have 12 books left and you're like, huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There was definitely a thought I had of, oh, honey. Yeah, it's like... (laughs) Honey, you got a big storm coming. Oh, I love those videos. I love... (laughs) No, he does have a big storm coming because, you know, if you were looking at it like, wait, we're only on book three and he killed Balsamon. How is that possible? You know, it's like... And you would think the coming of the Dragon Reborn would be much more than a civil war in Kyrian and Aeol and men fighting. Sweetie, the world hasn't even been broken yet. It's not even started No, we, we, we've definitely had some dominoes start tumbling, but we are nowhere near the last domino. <laughs> no, nowhere near. And it's... Whew. All right, so we are on the last chapter. We are on chapter 56, The People of the Dragon. 
So there's a brief paragraph saying people of Tyr had been dreaming about what happened. And so now they are gathered outside the uh, Stone of Tyr where the dragon banner that Moraine had given Rand now flies. And we now have Matt. We get a Matt is in a sort of conference room with Ruark. And we now know Avienda is in the Stone of Tyr as well. It's funny because uh, he says, burn me, that Avienda nearly took my head off when I asked her if she could do any dances without spears. And it's just... Matt, you have so <laughs> much to learn. Oh, I know. And then we, and we meet two other Aya women, Bane and Chiad. Um, he tries to flirt with them. And he even mentions, I don't know who found it funnier, Bane and Chiad or the Aiel men who are just watching him try to flirt with these women. And they're just like, no, dude. So they, it's another great moment because Egwene's like, I can't believe Perrin's here. And Maureen's like, yeah, his companion is also in some considerable danger. And he may have put himself in it too. You just see Egwene and Nynaeve go, (laughs) companion? Wait a second. Hold on. Wait. And Moraine just cuts them off, and we learn that she has a seal to the Dark One's prison. And it's not broken, and they say, this is the second time Rand faced Balsamon, and this, but this seal isn't broken. The other two times there have been broken seals, and Nynaeve kind of goes, that doesn't matter now, and Moraine goes, it really does matter. And then Matt, being the little shit that he is, breaks in with, your pardon. And he goes, so we're done, right? Like, this is it. Stone of Tear has fallen. There's the, we're the people of the dragon now, I guess. Rand killed Balsamon. Like, this is it, right? And Moraine goes, perhaps. I came to stop the law from killing Rand. I did not expect to see the Stone of Tear fall. Perhaps we are people of the dragon. Prophecies are fulfilled as they are, meant to be, not as we think they should be. And then we get another bit of Aiel lore. Uh, Ruark says, When a man wishes to become a clan chief, he must go to Ruidian in the lands of the Gen Aiel, the clan that is not. And we see some hesitance as he continues. And he says, Women who wish to become wise ones also make this journey. If they are marked, we don't know. They keep it a secret. But the clan men who return from Ruidian... He, they have a mark on their uh, arm, on their left arm, and we see Ruark has a dragon wrapped around his left arm. So, again, there is some hesitation as he's going about this. Moraine confirms that the Aiel are the people of the dragon. And so, again, Matt goes, we're done, right? And Egwene's like, no, there are Forsaken still loose, the Black Ajar still loose, there's still the seals to the Dark One's prison. So then, this is the answer to your question about Balsamon that you asked. Matt names the Dark One. He says Shaitan, and Moraine's like, do not do that. Uh, do not name the Dark One. And Matt goes, he's dead. I saw the body. And Moraine goes, you saw the body. A man's body, not the Dark One, Matt. So he kind of keeps going, who is that? And Moraine goes, you recognize Balsamon, or rather the man who called himself Balsamon. The Dark One yet lives, imprisoned at Sheogul, and the shadow yet flies across the pattern. And so Nynaeve brings up, if he's not the Dark One, then who is he? And then Moraine goes, he is a man, perhaps one of the first of the Forsaken who had been freed from the Dark One's prison. 
or maybe he was never bound. And Egwene says, Varen showed her a page from an old book that mentioned Balsamont and Ishamael together. And it, there's something about a name hidden behind a name. And uh, maybe Balsamont is Ishamael himself. So to confirm this for you, Balsamont and Ishamael are one and the same. So we have now lost another Forsaken. Two in one go. I'm telling you, I'm just, I'm not worried about them. They are like, right. <laughs> uh, I'll keep an open mind for the rest of this series. But as soon as we meet them, they're gone. <laughs> we still have Lanfear, and we still have someone named Ravine, who Moraine mentions. Three of the seals of the Dark One's prison are broken, and she says, whatever battle we won here, it's far from the last. And then a woman comes into the room, a very beautiful woman, and a very beautiful woman, and I asked you a question a little bit earlier on, and Sorry, I'm getting my charger. I want to read this brief passage to you, and I want to see if the connection comes to you. All right? <clears throat> a tall young woman of regal bearing entered the room, wearing a coronet with a golden hawk in flight above her brows. Her black hair swept to pale shoulders, and her dress of the finest red silk left those shoulders bare, along with a considerable expanse of what Matt noted as an admirable bosom. Anything stand out? Uh, besides her considerable chest... Uh, yes. <laughs> so, so graciously put. Um, didn't we, don't we have something about a hawk with parents telling like a hawk and a falcon? Mm-hmm. I forget, I forget exactly how it's laid out, but, but that, that yeah. symbol jumped out at me. So we'll see how that goes because she introduces herself as Bearling, first of Mayenne. And she was given a letter, but when asked who gave this to you, she kind of like phases out a bit and goes like, I don't know. She was impressive. And before she leaves, she goes, all right, let Ram know that I'm going to be having dinner with him. Bye. And just kind of like saunters out. And um, Egwene and Elaine both say at the same time, I would like to have her in the tower as novice. Which I'm like, all right, girls, all right. And then we find out the letters from Lanfear, who says, Loose Theron was mine. He is mine, and he will be mine forever. I give him into your charge to keep for me until I come. And when Moraine reads that, when she finishes the letter, she turns to Matt and says, And you thought it was done? You are to veer and Matt, a thread more crucial to the pattern than most, and the sounder of the horn of the lyre. Nothing is done for you yet. And I kind of wanted to ask you about what you thought about the looks that each of the girls give him. Now, Nave is looking at him sadly, Egwene as though she had never seen him before, Elaine as if she had expected him to change into someone else. So, I do believe, okay, let's okay. go at it one at a time. Uh, so, how did exactly. Nynaeve look at him? So I think that's because she's maternal to him, you know, and, and she knows the life that they had before. And I think out of all the boys, you know, Perrin and Matt, well, I guess all of them equally, but it feels most unfair to Matt to put him in that type of position because we've said it before. He's he's a boy. Yeah. He's a child at heart. He 
really should have been given the opportunity to travel the world and live a full life. But that's just not possible, obviously. Uh, how did Egwene look at him? She had never seen him before. So that I kind of took as Egwene is coming into her her own power and understanding that a bit. I think she's understanding that Matt is kind of doing the same thing and that kind of in the same lane as Nynaeve, he's not a boy. But not only that, he's going to be something very important in their shared quest right now. You know, they used Matt just as a messenger boy earlier yeah. on. But now she's realizing that he's going to be yeah, here to the, the end. Of the horn of Valir, so... And then Elaine, as if she expected him to change into something else. I think, and I could be wrong here, I think Elaine's got a little bit of a crush on Matt. And I think she wants him to be that knight in shining armor. And I think she knows that he is still kind of the Matt we know. He's still kind of the boy, the child at heart. And she wants him to be that knight in shining armor. She wants him to be the hero and the warrior that he okay. claims he isn't. Nice. Well, I think you're spot on with how you thought of Egwene and Nynaeve, because I think it is that very, like, it's Matt. Like, really? Like, not in a derisive way, but I think, again, I think they both thought it's about Rand. I don't think they've realized that, no, it's Rand, Matt, and Perrin are tied into this, you know? And I think that's worrying for them. I do like what you said about Elaine. So the third book ends with Matt going, of course, I understand. You can count on me. But thinking at the same time, okay, maybe we can get Tom and Perrin to come with me as we run away. But he's just like, sure, yeah, I'm staying, you know. And outside the cries still rose unceasing. The dragon, Althor, the dragon, Althor, the dragon, Althor, the dragon. And I'd like to imagine, like, yes, it is a very serious moment, but it's like, the dragon, Althor, the dragon, Althor, hey, hey. (laughs) It's just a call and response. The new game game in uh, tier is not Marco Polo, Althor, the dragon, Althor, the dragon. And so we have a epigraph that Amy read and... I'm going to just insert it here. And it was written that no hand but his should wield the sword held in the stone, but he did draw it out, like fire in his hand, and his glory did burn the world. Thus did it begin. Thus do we sing his rebirth. Thus do we sing the beginning. From Doan Toldarate, Songs of the Last Age, Quarto Nine, The Legend of the Dragon. Composed by Boan, song mistress at Taralan, the Fourth Age. So we have finished the third book of The Wheel of Time. Eric, how do you feel? I, you know, I feel about the same as I did the first two books. I feel like we're getting some setup for some impressive events to come. I do think this book sets them up a bit more because it gives us a bit more of a peek into how the world works, how magic works, how how our characters are growing and such. But ultimately, I, I got to be real honest, felt a little flat just because, again, we meet a Forsaken, and he's gone. Rand picks up the almighty magical weapon and kills his foe. It's 
it's just a bit of a formula that I'm seeing over and over again. And I'm really hoping it changes up a little bit in the books to come. And I can say, yes, the shadow rising is definitely a change of pace. And I think there are still forsaken to go. We have, uh, Gabriel, we have Lanfear, we have Ravine, we have Samael. We have several more to go that we have yet to meet. Um, and I'm very excited for you to meet them because it's, it's, I can definitely understand why you feel it would be flat. Um, yeah, the formula for the first two books is a little eh, but um, I think I want to leave it here because uh, next week we will be doing a uh, postmortem on the Dragon Reborn and kind of talking about what you think we'll be going into when we get into the Shadow Rising. Oh uh, yeah, and I I would love that because, you know, I do say it, it felt a little flat to me, but by no means do I want to say that this is a bad book or I had a bad experience. There's so much good stuff in here that I want to unpack in that in that uh, post-mortem show. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, and uh, we want to thank everyone for joining us this week. Uh, Eric, where can they find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Viva Ladanes. That is V-I-V-A-L-A-D-A-I-N-S. And I am at The Only Gay in the Two Rivers. Uh, we also have a link to our Discord and the uh, bio for our podcast if you want to join us there. If you want to hear us recording live, we try to record every Thursday or every Friday, depending on when my work decides to cooperate with me. Yep. Otherwise, uh, if you are not on the Discord catching us live, you can subscribe to our podcast. We are on Anchor, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And we'll see you all next week when we're not covering chapters, but we are covering a postmortem of the entire book, The Dragon Reborn. Right. See you guys next week.